1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. We, we go. welcome in everybody. Episode two twenty nine of the podcast the sweeping America, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It is Monday, March second, and we got a new intro for the show. I'd like to say that it was some big grand thing, grand scheme, where I said it's March, we need to freshen this thing up, but honestly, I've just wanted to do it for a while. I finally had the chance to pull some of the sound bites that you heard to open the show. That will be our new open. Shout out to my buddy, Ty Richardson, a radio host in Arkansas, who helped me put that together. That is the new intro. Out with Justin Bieber, in with Cardi B. It is 2020. It is March, and we are about to have an incredible episode 229 of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast for you. First of all, a little bit of a long episode today because later on I have an interview that you guys are going to love. Dave Pash from ESPN. Dave Pash, of course, is the guy that does thursday night saturday night games with bill walton uh and he was at the usc arizona game last thursday and so was i we coordinated we connected and we did a sit down 45 minute interview where we talk about all sorts of things we talk about his life with bill walton all the crazy things that bill walton puts him through we talk about uh you know his time at espn all the different sports that he's covered he actually covered the great outdoor games with friend of the air torres sports Podcast, Jimmy Dykes. So, great interview with him. It spans his entire career. We talk a little bit about the Pac-12, but a very fun interview with Dave Pash. Before we get to that, I'm going to do what I always do, which is recap an incredible weekend in college basketball. I know last episode I kind of ended with UCLA, but I do want to go back to UCLA to lead the show because what Mick Cronin has done there is incredible. As, Arizona, as UCLA sweeps the Arizona schools, Arizona State and Arizona, both NCAA tournament teams, and UCLA now alone in first place in the Pac-12, one of the best coaching jobs that I have ever seen what Mick Cronin is doing right now. Speaking of great coaching jobs, I'm going to talk a little bit about Kentucky clinching the SEC, and I got to wonder, is this John Calipari's best coaching job since he's gotten to Kentucky as the Wildcats clinched the SEC regular season title? And we will bring back, before we get to Dave Pash America's favorite segment, Where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, I have ripped it off many times from my buddy Colin Cowherd, and uh, yeah, and it basically is where I go through some of the bigger stories from the weekend and in college basketball, I tell you where I was right, I tell you where I was wrong. Before we get started... And we got a lot to get to today. I want to remind everybody, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. This is the time. If there was ever a time to subscribe, now is it. You can do it on iTunes. If you have an Android, podcast addict is the way to go. Use the podcast addict app. That's what I do to listen to this show. Uh, Tune in radio, Spotify, what else? Pod Paradise, Podbean. Wherever you listen to podcasts, this show is available. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars like our new buddy. Uh, I got to find this one because this one's great. This one came from day one. And he says, caution, takes may be hot. Been listening since episode one to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And uh, I actually just lost the review. So give me a second here. All right. Day one says, caution takes may be hot been listening since episode one torres always says what he believes very knowledgeable about the sport a little stubborn about the gonzagas and san diego states of the world but still a great show so day one I appreciate you listening since day one. I appreciate the 229 downloads now as we are on episode 229. And if you want to uh, make uh, rate and review the show, make sure you go ahead and do that. Also, make sure you're following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. Some cool stuff going on over there as we get more towards March Madness. Hoping to put together a March Madness pool with some pretty cool prizes and giveaways. I will have more details on that. And finally two things one if you have questions I'm going to do a mailbag next episode Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com and as I mentioned if you are a small business owner or you know somebody who is and you want the opportunity to advertise with us now is the time to do it March is going to be bananas the show's numbers go up every single month they have since September. Go ahead and hit me up, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com, and we will get your business onto this show. All right, let's get into the weekend. Crazy weekend. I'm not going to break down everything because, listen, you know I've said it before, I'll say it again. Losses happen in this sport. I'm not going to freak out that Baylor lost to TCU. I don't believe that it's some big sweeping Uh, Indictment on Baylor. I don't believe that Villanova losing to Providence means that Villanova's terrible or Creighton losing to St. John's means that Creighton's terrible. This is just how the sport works. So instead, what we're going to talk about and what we're going to start with is the UCLA Bruins. And it's funny because I kind of closed the show last week with UCLA. And if you remember, the reason was kind of simple. I just kind of said point blank look, we record this show. On Sunday night and Wednesday night. Sunday night, it's really hard to find time to talk about everything. And so UCLA and in general, the Pac-12 kind of falls under the radar sometimes. And then we record on Wednesday before the Pac-12 plays on Thursday and Saturday. So, so often when a good Pac-12 story happens, it's just not in the window that I record. And so I gave UCLA a little bit of love on last uh, Thursday's episode, but I want to circle back because It was kind of one of those setups where it was like, yeah, you know, Mick Cronin's doing kind of a great job, and good for him, and go Bruins, fight, 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 Um, but it is now a completely different narrative today on Monday, March 2nd, because we are on March 2nd, UCLA did just sweep the Arizona schools, and they are now alone in first place in the Pac-12. If they beat USC this weekend, they only have one regular season game left and Oregon loses a game, they will be your Pac-12 regular season champions. And even if they're not the Pac-12 champions, let me tell you this. We need to talk about Mick Cronin because this is not only one of the best coaching jobs in college basketball this year, I think it is one of the best coaching jobs that I have ever seen in college basketball in a single season period, and let me explain why. And to really explain why, You really do have to go back to last year. If you remember, the day Steve Alford was fired, it was December 30th. It was New Year's Eve, Eve, basically. He got fired the night before New Year's Eve. And then on New Year's Eve day was the day that kind of the news came out and we recorded this show and whatever. Um, You know, you guys know that I did a show about it. And it was actually, in hindsight, it was kind of funny because it was kind of one of the first shows that Nick Coffey really wasn't on it. And I did a big, long, extended solo segment. And frankly, it kind of gave me the confidence to do it more like I'm doing now. But the reason I bring it up was because I really spent about a half an hour, 40 minutes, somewhere in that neighborhood talking about the UCLA coaching job. And the reason, very simply, is this. is because I thought that as Steve Alford had gotten fired and as the job opened up, I thought there was a lot of misinformation out there about the UCLA coaching job. And I saw all these other national media guys that host podcasts and do all this stuff oh, it's, you know, they're living in the past and they can't win at UCLA like they used to and they'll it'll never be the same and they don't have the resources and they don't charter planes. Like, that was the big thing. That was the big thing I heard everywhere. Well, they don't charter planes, so they can't be good. And I will say, like, I think some of what people said was accurate is I think that at times UCLA fans can be unfair to the program and the people in charge and the, the, the coaching staff and all that stuff. But what I also thought was that it was ridiculous to make the argument that the sport had passed UCLA by, that there was no chance that they could ever be good again or ever even, frankly, get the coach that they wanted when the coaching search opened. And I really do believe that because I live in LA, because I'm 45 minutes, a half an hour from that campus, I do believe that basically of anybody that hosts a podcast, really of anybody that talks college basketball, except for maybe, you know, Sean Farnham who played at UCLA or uh, Steve Lavin, who coached at UCLA, like outside of a couple people, I think I know more about that program and how it works than just about anybody else. And so when the Steve Alford thing happened, everyone, I keep hearing, "Oh, it's 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 over." They're just they're you know they're not going to get their guy. They'll never be good. It's 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 a different era. It's a different time. And like I said, some of it is true, but some of it was just completely factually incorrect. And so I remember saying at that time, and I stand by it, and I was ended up being correct. But I said like, look. they're not that far away they have incredible talent the issue is that Steve Alford who I've been critical of I'll actually talk about Steve in a minute because I think he's done an excellent job at Nevada this year but like it was fair to say that it wasn't the administration's fault at UCLA that Steve Alford had 10 top 100 recruits on his roster and that he got fired for losing to Belmont and Liberty And those were the two big losses that cost Steve Alford their job. And people were saying, oh, they don't have the resources, they don't have this, and they don't have that. Yeah, you still can't lose to Belmont and Liberty. And so it was one of those deals where it was time for Steve Alford to go. And when he left, the one thing I said was this. I said, UCLA can get back. UCLA can win national championships in this era. Now, they're never going to win 10 out of 12 like they did in the John Wooden era because nobody's going to do that. But there's no reason that UCLA can't be Kentucky of the West Coast or North Carolina of the West Coast or Kansas of the West Coast. They have everything you need. First of all, it is arguably the most beautiful campus in the country. I mean, 70 degrees, sun-soaked, beautiful. Um, the recruiting base is through the roof. You don't have to drive more than 50 miles in any direction. You're going to have 10 top 100 players, two or three McDonald's All-Americans. It's insane. But um, You have the NBA players all work out at UCLA during the summer, so you get a chance to run with the UCLA, or the UCLA players get a chance to run with NBA guys like LeBron and James Harden and Ben Simmons because all those guys work out in the area. There are a lot of benefits to coaching at UCLA and to playing at UCLA, but they needed the right guy, and what they needed was Uh, really a shot in the arm of toughness. That was my big thing at the time that I said, and I stand by it today, and we're seeing it in action, was that they had a bunch of guys that were really highly recruited, that came to UCLA, and for whatever reason, they just weren't working out. And that was my one criticism of Steve Alford, um, is that I do believe, and I think he would probably maybe even admit this in hindsight, is he probably focused a little bit too much on recruiting rankings. He allowed Um, you know, recruiting rankings to get the best of them. He was trying to get the best players because he felt like at UCLA, you need to sign five-star McDonald's All-Americans without building a team. And so it cost him, and the team lost, and the team stunk. Like I said, they lost to Belmont. They lost to Liberty. Steve Alford was fired. Uh, His replacement, Murray Bartow, comes in. It's not much better. He was, of course, the interim head coach. And um, It just doesn't work out well for UCLA, and so then the offseason comes, and we have that crazy long coaching search that went about a million different directions, and for a time, it was, oh, can they get John Calipari, and we all knew they weren't getting John Calipari, but that's okay, neither here nor there, can they get Rick Barnes, can they get Tony Bennett, can they get Jay Wright, and they ended up settling on McCronin. and like I said, and I said at the time, I said, this could be a blessing in disguise, Because he didn't need the biggest name or the flashiest name or get somebody from the NBA. Just get the guy that is going to get back to the fundamentals, get back to the basics that know what they're doing. And I will give the UCLA Athletic Director, Dan Guerrero, who has taken a ton of heat. He's actually retiring. I'll give him a ton of credit because I know a little bit about the coaching search. And there were some candidates that were kind of flashier. Earl Watson, who's been a friend of mine for years, has actually been on this show. He was a guest maybe in the first, you know, uh, probably 20 episodes of this show. Earl had coached in the NBA. He had a ton of ties to AAU, and I he was a finalist for that job. He almost got the job, and The criticism was of Earl, and the reason he didn't get the job was, can he build a program? We know he can coach. He coached in the NBA. We know he's an alum. We know he's going to unite the fan base. And we know he can recruit because he has ties to the AAU scene. But can he build a program? And so they went with Mick Cronin because maybe he didn't recruit at the highest level, but he had built a program. And so they bring in Mick Cronin. And even with Mick Cronin, it was still a complete disaster. It was still a complete disaster start for all the reasons that I mentioned. First of all, UCLA lost its three best players statistically off of last year's team. Chris, Han- uh, Chris Wilkes, Cody... Uh, let me start that over. They lost their three best players off last year's team. Chris Wilkes, Jalen Hands, and Moses Brown. Cody Riley is still on the team. I just combined Cody, into, Cody Riley and Jalen Hands into one person. But Jalen Hands, their point guard. Chris Wilkes, a wing and Moses Brown down low, three former McDonald's All-Americans, all leave. Um, and what you have is a bunch of mismatched bars. Now, they're highly ranked players, but they were players that either hadn't played or played in different roles or had, had weird skill sets. You know, their big guys, Jalen Hill and Cody Riley, are basically low post kind of banger guys. And they had a couple freshmen, Jaime Jaquez and, and uh, Jake Kyman, who are kind of under the radar recruits a little bit and Chris Smith is this wing but how does he really fit in and so just this weird kind of conglomerate of mismatched parts and not surprisingly it didn't go well to start the season for UCLA they go to the Maui Invitational and they lose two games now they end up In hindsight, the losses aren't that bad. They lose to BYU, who it turns out BYU is actually pretty good this year. They lose to Michigan State, who we know how good Michigan State is. They only come out of Maui with a win over Chaminade, which doesn't even count for the record because it's a D2 team. But it got worse when they came back. They lost to UNC without Cole Anthony, a game that I talked about on this show last week because it was part of the CBS Sports Classic. They lost to Cal State Fullerton, who is terrible. It's actually funny. I have a uh, a buddy who coaches at Cal State Fullerton, and we joke through text, like, every time UCLA wins, oh, your, your, your strength schedule goes up. UCLA picked up another win. But the point being is that this team was really, 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 really bad. And at one point, it bottomed out. They lost to Stanford at home. Final score, 74-59. This was on January 15th. They fall to eight and nine, and that is where rock bottom hits, okay? It was so bad that Mick Cronin had one of the ultimate, all-time post-game rants that I have ever heard, okay? And what did I tell you? Say what you want about Mick Cronin. Say what you want about Cincinnati. Did he, you know, Cincinnati fans will tell you, well, he didn't win this in the tournament and that in the tournament. The one thing about Mick Cronin that he was always going to do, he was going to bring toughness to this program, to this university, and to his players. And I want to read to you what Mick Cronin said after the Stanford game on January 15th to fall to eight and nine on the season. His exact quote, when the going gets tough, Cronin said, we don't have a lot of guys who get going. When the going gets tough, we have some guys who will fold. We have a lack of toughness. He continued, as the game goes on, our softness shows up. Our selfishness at times is evident, and it's been probably to people who have watched us all year on the offensive end, some of the shots we take in the turnovers, because certain guys don't want to pass the ball. This was not something that was said behind closed doors. This was not something um, that was reported through a third party and you know it was leaked to, to you know Jeff Goodman or John Rothstein. Mick Cronin said that at a press conference. He said, when the going gets tough. We don't have a lot of guys. We have guys who will fold. We don't have guys who will get going. We lack toughness. But that was where the gauntlet was thrown down. Now, part of it was Mick Cronin has made adjustments to the lineups. I will say, I found it very interesting. They beat Washington early in the year. And as I said, uh, Jake Kyman and Jaime Jaquez, who were their only two freshmen, they were both playing significant minutes. I thought that was very telling because what Mick Cronin was basically saying was like, look. I don't care who you guys are, I don't care you seniors and juniors how high your recruiting ranking was, if you're not going to do the things that help us win, if you're not going to play hard, if you're not going to defend, if you're not going to pass the ball, we are not going to play you. And it continued and the lineups have changed and like I said, Jaquez and Jake Kyman are getting more playing time, David Singleton who's a player who was injured last year got more playing time, Sharif O'Neal transferred. I'm not saying Sharif O'Neal was the problem. I'm just saying that he transferred. Maybe it helped uh, Prince Ali, who was a, a fifth-year senior, gets moved to the bench, and now you're seeing the results. Now you're seeing what we're all seeing, which is one of the hottest teams in the Pac-12. They have now won 9 of 11 games, and uh, or 11 of 13, I believe. And after going 8 and 9... They are now 19 and 11. So, yes, they have won 11 of their last 13 and are alone in first place in the Pac 12. And so, I give Mick Cronin so much credit. And again, I've been critical of Steve Alford, but the thing that Mick Cronin has done that the previous staff didn't is hold the guys accountable. He didn't care about recruiting rankings, he didn't care about hurting people's feelings, he didn't care about benching juniors and seniors if they weren't capable of playing, if they weren't capable of playing winning basketball. And he has inserted a level of toughness with this team. It's been incredible to watch. And like I said, it is one of the. And I'm not exact. I'm not trying to be facetious or you know get, go you know go overboard with this. It is one of the great coaching jobs that I have ever seen in college basketball. And I'll tell you why. When a new coach comes in, listen. Nine times out of ten, when a new coach comes in, the reason is because the last guy sucked, right? The last guy got fired. In some situations, you have a case where a guy leaves for a better job, and so you inherit a good situation, but in most cases, when you take over a job, it's because the last guy stunk, and so every coach says when they come in, we're going to build a culture, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, but it doesn't always work that way, right? And even if it does work that way, it takes time. Very rarely do you have immediate buy-in, do you have an immediate kind of flip of the switch. And usually when that happens, it comes from, you know, a really good recruiting class. So John Calipari coming in, he inherited a lot of good players. Patrick Patterson, uh, um, you know, I'm blanking on everybody else, DeAndre Liggins, Darius Miller. But then he also brought in John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Eric Bledsoe. Usually, though, if you can't bring in that kind of recruiting class, and basically only John Calipari can do that, um, you know, it takes a while for your team to figure it out. I'm a UConn fan. Dan Hurley, same thing, needed to change the culture. Well, guess what? It took Dan Hurley a year and a half. UConn is just now starting to play and look like a UConn team. Dan Hurley's doing a lot of the same things that Mick Cronin did in year one in terms of shuffling the lineup, playing the younger players that are willing to compete in all those things. And so for Mick Cronin to do it in year one and to seemingly flip the switch overnight where he went from eight and nine to all of a sudden, you look at that schedule now, they have swept Arizona, beaten Arizona twice at Arizona and at UCLA. They have swept Colorado, which is a tournament team, uh, beaten, uh, beaten, excuse me, Colorado at Colorado and then again at Pauley Pavilion. They beat Arizona State in a game on Thursday, which was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Even on Saturday night against Arizona, they were down four with four minutes to go and came back to win that game. That is mental toughness. That is physical toughness. That is why today, right now, Mick Cronin is my national coach of the year. I've never seen anything like this in season from a first-year head coach. It is incredible, and I give him a ton of credit Uh, One of the best coaching jobs I've ever seen, and I'm glad I got that UCLA ran off my chest because that team and that program are very deserving of the praise that they're getting from me and from other people who cover this sport right now. All right, whew, that was good. All right, that was really good. I'm not gonna lie, it was good. I do a good job. I do want to talk about another spectacular coaching job that I have seen this year and that deserves credit, and it's a guy that frankly doesn't get enough credit. And that's, of course, John Calipari, right? Nobody wants to ever give John Calipari credit. Well, he recruits the best players in the country and, uh, you know, whatever. But John Calipari, Kentucky just won the SEC regular season title on Saturday. They are now, what, uh, 13-2 and in SEC play. They have a three-game lead with two games to go, meaning that even if they lose their final two games, which I don't think they will, they play Tennessee at home, they play at Florida on Saturday, even if they lose those two games, Kentucky still will be your SEC regular season champ. And so as I was watching Kentucky beat beat Auburn on Saturday in a game that really wasn't as close as the final score indicated, I know Kentucky won by seven, but it was one where Kentucky basically had a, you know, four, five, six point lead all of the second half and you never really felt like they were going to lose that game. But as I was watching that game, I couldn't help but think one thing, which was very simply this. John Calipari, as I just said a minute ago, he gets a ton of crap because no matter what he does, oh, he has the number one recruiting class, and he's supposed to to win. Well, you know what? You're probably right. It also doesn't change the fact that I think this is one of his best coaching jobs. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. I think this is John Calipari's best coaching job since getting to the University of Kentucky. And he's had better seasons, and he's had better, more talented teams, and he's had Um, a higher win total, and he's had more SEC wins. I don't think that he's ever had a better season than this. And the reason is very simply this. goes back to what I said a minute ago. I understand that most years he has substantially more talent than everybody else in the SEC, but I don't think this is one of those years. First of all, we know the deal with recruiting, bring in the number one class, number two class in the country every single year, but first of all, I think we see, looking across college basketball, that the best recruits in college basketball coming into this season were not as good as ones in previous season. Forget the Kentucky. There is no Zion Williamson. There is no R.J. Barrett in this class. There is no Trey Young. There is no Lonzo Ball. There is no certainly Anthony Davis, John Wall. I don't think there's even a De'Aaron Fox in this class. I don't think there's a Bam Adebayo. Bam Adebayo was an all-star this year. I don't think there's a bam out of bio in this class that you look three, four years from now and say, okay, that guy's a, a, an all-star. I don't see it. So on top of the fact that it wasn't a great class, Cal Perry in Kentucky for a number of different reasons missed on a number of recruits. James Wiseman goes to Memphis, Kentucky was the second choice. Anthony Edwards goes to Georgia, Kentucky was either the second or third choice. Oscar Sheebway goes to West Virginia, Kentucky, second third choice. Jaden McDaniels goes to Washington, Kentucky's the second third choice. Carrie Blackshear, graduate transfer, goes to Florida, Kentucky's the second or third choice. Uh, Scotty Lewis goes to Florida, Kentucky is the second choice. And so, on top of the fact that it already wasn't a good class, for a number of different reasons, Kentucky did miss on some guys. I will say watching college basketball, it might be better that some of them didn't end up at Kentucky, neither here nor there. But I bring all this up simply to say that it's not as though he had this overwhelming recruiting class. And then the returning players, we all kind of know the deal. They're only back in college basketball because something went wrong last year. And everybody's deal is a little bit different, right? Ashton Hagan started and he basically played big minutes every game, but it kind of just felt like for whatever reason, it didn't click I give him a ton of credit for basically saying last April, I know I'm not ready, I'm coming back. Um, EJ Montgomery tested the draft waters, wanted to leave, couldn't get a guarantee. I get it, he comes back. And then let's be honest, Nick Richards and Emmanuel quickly are back because they didn't really have any other option other than to transfer. But if they want to stay at Kentucky, they weren't going pro. And so you take this group that had four guys that basically weren't good enough for the NBA, You add in a recruiting class that's good but not great. Outside of Tyrese Maxey, nobody is going to be a one-and-done in this class. And you look at the roster and you say, like, all right, like, this team's kind of, you know, eh. You know, and and, and I'll say this. I know it's not just me. I know other people, Kentucky fans, felt this way at various points about this roster. I was in Vegas. I hosted a crazy get-together happy hour. You guys loved it. You had a great time. Shout out to Lagasse's. I'll be there next week during champ week. But I talked to a lot of Kentucky fans, and a lot of them said what I'm saying right now, which is, and this was in December now. This is, I'm not speaking for people in real time here in March, but in December, people were saying, I don't know this team. I don't think this team has it. I don't think this team has those guys. I don't think this team is going to be one of those teams. And so when you fast forward to March 1st when I'm recording, March 2nd when you're listening, that's why I think you can make a case that this is maybe John Calipari's best coaching job at Kentucky. He he has taken a bunch of guys that weren't good enough for the NBA and maybe... Maybe his least impressive recruiting class, kind of when you look at what they've done as freshmen, really his least impressive recruiting class in a while. That's not a knock on the kids that are there. Johnny Juzang's coming along. Keon Brooks is coming along. But it's not the same as Wall Cousins Bledsoe. It's not the same as Atabayo, Malik Monk, and De'Aaron Fox. Like this, It's not one of those recruiting classes. Yet John Calipari, he has this team, as I said, at 24-5 and five in uh, overall. They are three games ahead in the SEC, 14-2 overall. I think I said 13-2 earlier, but they're 14-2 overall. And let me say this, too. This is the part that, that makes me believe that this is his best coaching job ever. First of all, just about every single player on this roster has got substantially better since the start of the season. I mean, think about where we were in November. I know Kentucky beat the number one team in the country, Michigan State, and we thought they were great, the greatest team ever, all that stuff. But think about where Emmanuel Quickly was. Think about where Nick Richards was. And think about where they are now. Emmanuel Quickly might be SEC Player of the Year. Nick Richards might be the second or third best center in college basketball behind Adoka Azabuke at Kansas. Ashton Hagens has gotten better. He's still a little turnover prone. But I think as a leader, as a point guard, as a guy who, get, who, who has this team locked in, I think he is better. Like I said a minute ago, Keon Brooks is playing tougher. EJ Montgomery, I actually really like the way that EJ Montgomery is playing. He's not, um, you know, 20-10 and 10 guy, but he plays really hard. He crashes the boards. He's fired up. He's, he's chest-bumping Nick Richards. He's showing more emotion in one game uh, the other day against Auburn than he did all of last year. Tyrese he's the one guy, I don't know if he's gotten better, but he certainly hasn't gotten worse. So when you take the fact that all of those guys have gotten better – and you take the fact that in this year in college basketball, with all this parity, think about this with Kentucky, and I tweeted this out and I stand by it. Kentucky is basically, since SEC play started, really since Christmas, so since that Ohio State loss, since Christmas, Kentucky has basically played one bad game all year. Think about that. Or excuse me, one bad half, not even a bad game. They played one bad half against South Carolina. That's it. When they lost to Auburn, I don't think they played bad. I think the refs were bad, they bounced back and beat Auburn, they beat Florida at home, they beat Mississippi State at home, they beat LSU on the road, they beat Arkansas on the road when Arkansas is playing really well, they beat Tennessee on the road, and you think about this team, like when is the last time, now they've had little stretches here and there against Vanderbilt and against Ole Miss, but outs- like, like, they've played one bad half of basketball since Christmas, that's incredible. And that speaks to John Calipari. That speaks to the fact that this guy is not just a recruiter. He is a developer of talent. He is a developer of players. He gets his players better. I could go on and on about all the guys who have improved dramatically under his watch. Whether it's Willie Cauley Stein, Devin Booker, you know Eric Bledsoe. I listen. I wrote the book, One and Fun. Eric Bledsoe was a, a, a first rounder on nobody's board when he got to Kentucky and he was a, oh, ended up being a one-and-done. So I could go on and on, but I just think that this is maybe John Calipari's best coaching job since he's gotten to Kentucky. Kentucky is the SEC champs, and I'm telling you, man, you wouldn't believe how many people in basketball right now that I'm talking to saying, that's a team. I know they're not going to be a one-seat, but that's a two- or a 3 seed that I think can make a run, potentially compete for a Final Four berth and a national championship. All right. All right. Doing good so far, as I mentioned a moment ago, Dave Pash is coming up, so stay tuned. Before we get to that, really quickly, I want to do what has quickly become, I think, a favorite of the listeners. It's called Where Aaron Was Right, Where Aaron Was Wrong, and it's basically, it's exactly what it sounds like. I stole it from my buddy Colin Cowherd. I'll probably be seeing him over the next month, and you know, Colin every Monday, On his show, he does this segment where Colin was right, where Colin was wrong, where he basically kind of says, look, look, you know, Tom Brady, I nailed that one. But Aaron Rodgers, I totally missed on that one. I was wrong. I own it, whatever. And so I've done that now. Obviously, I talk more college basketball than he does. Certainly I talk more college football than he does, but I've done it on this show and you guys seem to like it. So it feels like a good day with everything that happened in college basketball this weekend. It's a good day to bring it back, and so let's get into it where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, where Aaron was right. How about those Duke Blue Devils? I led last episode by telling you once they get away from Cameron Indoor's arena, they are not very good. I gave you the stat. I told you. I said they've lost coming into this weekend their last two road games. Game before that on the road at North Carolina, they needed two buzzer beaters. Game before that, they beat Syracuse. Game before that, they're losing to Boston College at Boston College in overtime, or excuse me, at at halftime. Point being, in the last six weeks, they have played one good game away from home, and that was against Syracuse. I bring it up because they lost to Virginia on Saturday, and I think this is who Duke is. I think they're a completely average team. I think they completely rely on Trey Jones and Vernon Carey. I thought it was very interesting that against Virginia, Trey Jones got 17 points. Vernon Carey got 17 points. The rest of the team got 16 points. And so I bring it up to say that this team is flawed. This team is not very good. I know it says Duke on the front of their chest. I know it's Coach K. I know everybody thinks once they get to the tournament, they're going to get a great draw and all the calls. And like, look, yes, they will go to Greensboro for the first two rounds but I think there's a lot of teams that can beat them, especially away from Cameron Indoor. They have now lost three straight on the road, and I think this team is completely average. I said it last episode, and I've said it again, where Aaron was wrong. So last time I did this, I talked about the Michigan State Spartans, and I said that I was the last person off Michigan State Island, but it was time to abandon ship. The ship was sinking, and I wasn't going down with it. It was the Titanic, and I wasn't going down with it, and I was getting on that life raft and getting away. Well, what has Michigan State done since? They've won three straight, and this week they beat Iowa at home, and they go to Maryland and avenge a loss against the best team in the Big Ten, and it wasn't even really that close. Big thing with Michigan State you need to watch out for. It appears as though finally, after 25 games, they finally have found a third score. Cassius Winston's always been awesome, Xavier Tillman's always been awesome. But Rocket Watts has been the difference. 13 points against Maryland, 21 against Iowa. He is a freshman. He's a guard. They call him Rocket for a reason. He plays really fast, but he's really good. If he continues to play well, Michigan can reach its potential as a Final Four national championship threat. Where Aaron was wrong. Where Aaron was right. Let's go back to where Aaron was right. Arizona. So I told you a few weeks ago. I said, look. I don't think this team's very good. Like, they're fine. They're not bad. I just don't think they're good. Well, I saw them in person against USC over the weekend. And then, of course, they lost to UCLA. And I'm telling you, this team is completely average. And it's really interesting because, to me, uh, what stands out to me is this. Is that every team that's going to get a top four, five, six seed in this tournament, listen, everybody's lost by now. Everyone's had bad nights. San Diego State's had bad nights. Gonzaga's had bad nights. Creighton Kentucky Duke Louisville whoever Arizona is the only team that's going to get like a top six seed that I have never once said whoa they were awesome tonight I totally get why everyone is so excited about them and like I said everyone's had bad nights but everybody has also had those good nights Creighton has had those nights where you're like dude if they shoot like this they can beat anybody Kentucky has had those nights where you're like they can beat anybody Duke has had those nights. Florida State has had those nights. Whoever, on and on and on and on and on. Arizona has never once this season had a night where I said, Whoa, that team is unbelievable. Bottom line is this Nico Mannion, he's a fine college point guard. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but he struggles against really good defenders. He struggles to create. It happened twice this weekend. Josh Green was hurt. The three-point shooting is inconsistent, although they do have shot makers. Their big guys are either soft or not skilled. Zeke Naji, I think, plays really hard. I don't know how skilled he is. Arizona, to me, I am completely unimpressed. I've been saying it for about a month, six weeks. I think they're a team that struggles to get out of the first weekend. Don't be fooled by the name on the front of their jersey. Don't be fooled by the mock drafts, which potentially have three Wildcats in the first round. I just don't think they're that good. Where Aaron was wrong... <laughs> This one hurts, guys. Remember my, my beef with Steve Alford and and really the people of Reno? Listen, I have no beef with Steve Alford, to be perfectly clear. I just did not like the hire at Nevada, and I certainly didn't like him getting a 10-year contract right after he got fired at UCLA for a lot of the reasons that I talked about earlier in the show. Nevada starts 3-3. Three three. I say this this hire is going to be a disaster. What was Nevada doing? Nevada fans crush me my mentions for three straight days are a grease fire. Well, I am here to tell you Nevada fans, you guys were right at least for this season and I was wrong. Now I still have my concerns long term, but I will give Steve Alford credit for this. After starting 3 and 3 in the season, they are they finished the regular season on Saturday 19 and 11 overall, 12 and 6 in the Mountain West, and they are in second place going into the Mountain West tournament. What I give Steve Alford most credit for is this. He identified early what this team does well. They have three great guards, Jalen Harris, Lindsey Drew, and Jazz Johnson. Those guys average like close to 50 points a game almost between the three of them. Sounds about right. Yeah, about 50 points a game between the three of them. And he just said, guys, go crazy. You guys create everything. You guys shoot. You guys score. He runs good offense for them. He gets those guys open. And all three of those guys are lethal. They gave San Diego State problems on Saturday, nearly upset San Diego State, and this is a team, while I'm not predicting it, I do think that Steve Alford and Nevada have a chance to win the Mountain West Tournament, which starts this week. I'm kind of fading on San Diego State, not quite sold on them like I once was, where Aaron was right. I will say this about Nevada. I criticize Steve Alford, but if you've listened to this podcast, you know this. When I went to Nevada, when Eric Musselman was there, and I watched a bunch of practices, and I was with the team for two or three days, there was a kid that was ineligible last year as a transfer who just tore up the first team, and his name was Jalen Harris, and I said, Jalen Harris is the best player in this program right now and other media members, there's a kid, CBB Central, who thinks he knows stuff about college basketball, he doesn't, oh, of course, of course the kid sitting out is better than the guy that got drafted by the NBA, what are you talking about? Hey, bro, do your homework, because Torres does his homework, Torres can see into the future, Torres knows what's up, and have you seen Jalen Harris? He's averaging 22 points a game, he is averaging 25 points a game in league play, And he might end up as Mountain West Player of the Year. He is one of the best scorers in all of college basketball. He is awesome. He's fun to watch. And Torres was right. Because when I watched that kid in practice, I said, that is the best player in this gym. He has been the best player at Nevada this season. Maybe the best player in the Mountain West besides Malachi Flynn. Where Aaron was also right, UConn Huskies. Listen, I've talked about this. I'm not going to spend a million years talking about Dan Hurley, but UConn all of January, just could not get over the hump. They competed with Villanova, had a chance to beat them late, didn't win. They played Wichita, lost to them in double overtime. They beat, uh, excuse me, they lost at Houston by four. They lost, uh, to Tulsa by four. And I said, give it time, UConn fans. Eventually, UConn is going to win a game and the entire program is going to flip. Well, guess what? That happened. UConn has now won six of eight out of this weekend after they won at East Carolina. And the incredible part is they're doing it. Two of their starters have gotten hurt. Akuka Cook and Tyler Polly, two starters from the beginning of the season, both out with season-ending injuries. A kid named Sid Wilson is also out. He was suspended. They're basically down to like six scholarship players, and they just won again. James Booknight is a rising star, number one play on SportsCenter Top 10. And I'm telling you, This program with James Booknight, with Jalen Gaffney, with uh, RJ Cole, a transfer who's sitting out, they will be ready for the Big East next year. Not saying they're going to win it, because Villanova might be good, Creighton has a chance to be really good next year, but UConn will be ready. Finally, where Aaron was wrong, this one pains me. The West Virginia Mountaineers. If you remember, there was one point on this show that I talked about national championship contenders, and I said West Virginia was one of them. And I said, they have a chance to potentially win it all. Uh, yeah, not so much. After starting 16-3, and West Virginia has gone 3-7 and seven since. They haven't won a road game since January 6th. And frankly, if it wasn't for what they did in the audit conference, this would be a bubble team. This team is trending in the wrong direction. They got smoked at home against Oklahoma. They can't score. They struggle this team is, it, it, it's just not working. It's just not working. They're not good. They're not even one of the four or five best teams in the Big 12 right now, let alone a national championship contender. I totally whiffed on that one. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry for the cough. I've been talking for like 40 minutes straight. It happens. But I think that's it for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I will be back with shout out of the day after Dave Pash. Stick around for that. But I do want to get to Dave Pash. And as I said, This guy is an unbelievable broadcaster, and we had an unbelievable conversation. We sat down before the USC-Arizona game last week for what was just an awesome conversation. He talked about his time with Bill Walton. He talked about the crazy stuff Bill Walton does on the sidelines, how it all comes together behind the scenes. Is it real? Is it fake? As well as his own career. Um, you know, coming from Syracuse and and working the small things on ESPN to get to where he is now, where he's one of the lead voices of college basketball and the NBA. So that is it. I will be back with shout out of the day, but I do not want to waste any more time because Dave Pash from ESPN will join me right now. All right, joining me in person uh, we are actually at the Galen Center before the USC-Arizona game. I don't think this will run until next week. So we could have literally like 11 different teams <laughs> atop the Pac-12. But Dave Pash, ESPN, voice of the Arizona Cardinals, long been an admirer of your work. And uh, we did this on the fly. And I appreciate you doing this, and we're doing sure. it in person. You got it, man. Good to be here. So I, I was thinking when I was driving in. Um, so probably it was at the Final Four last year. I had uh, Matt McMahon, who's the head coach of Murray State, a good friend of mine, he came on, and it was right after their run with John Morant, and I said to him, I said, when is the last time you went a day without being asked about John Morant? <laughs> and the reason I bring that up, you might know where I'm going with this. The guy I that do. you work with <laughs> on Thursday, Saturday, yeah. how, uh, Do you get at, when's the last day you've just gone through your everyday life without somebody asking about the big redhead?
0: Well, it's funny you say that, because last night, or whenever this airs then, last week, I was doing Boston, Utah, sure, and, the, and we go. We do our coaches' meetings about an hour, hour and a half before tip off. And okay. the first thing, the very first thing, out of both Brad Stevens <laughs> and Quinn Snyder, is, "Oh, you get a day off today?" Because yeah. I was with Chauncey. Or, uh, "Oh man, I saw you last week." Was that Frank Kelly I mean, it like, <laughs> so it's it's amazing. It's almost like it's a cult, like, yes. Uh, you know, and if you. Uh, like it's become a cult following where people, because it's not like they're the highest rated games sure. or the games that, you know, uh, two unranked teams playing on a mm-hmm. Thursday night is, you know, must watch TV. But for whatever reason, um, you know, it's certainly not for everybody, but I well, think there, there are a lot of people that enjoy it. So.
1: People say it's not for everybody. <laughs> and listen, we all see the social media backlash to everything. Sure. But sure. I've seen uh, your partner, Bill Walton, walking through airports and at games like we're at tonight. Uh, everybody wants the picture. Everybody wants the high five so people say it's people say it's like you know uh, i don't I want to focus more on basketball, but then, like you said it's it's you know eighty two sixty eight with uh, maybe not sixty eight but it's eighty two fifty seven with eight minutes to go, and all of a sudden you know you' got a little right. more, but reason yeah. to stay tuned.
0: you know I think one thing we tried to do Aaron, we' tried to um, kind of keep advancing it in sure. other words. Sure, it <laughs> can get stale if yeah. if you're just doing the same shtick, and I think that's what makes it unique with Bill. Is Bill is you know he's just different, and sure. so uh, he comes up with something new. Our producer Tim Sullivan does a great job of coming up with something new. We've had a lot of different guests this year. The Frank Caliendo thing mm-hmm. was funny. Um, we got Richard Jefferson doing a game with us on Saturday. We had Mark Jackson join us for the crossover um so we did one year with dick vital and him we did a year with doris uh so just trying to change it up and document the game i think if i you know it's easy and i'm sure i've been guilty of it of getting caught up in him and then now all of a sudden you're you got two guys that are out in the outfield (laughs) and then the fans missing out because they're not getting any sort of documentation so i've got to try to remind myself first and foremost you got to document the game you got to Pick your spots to play along with Bill. Pick your spots to tell him, hey, back to the game, or pick your spots to just simply ignore him. Sure. And I think he knows that. I sure, think, he, I think sure, he's, sure. he he's fine with that.
1: What um so I looked it up today. You guys have been working together, I think, since like twenty thirteen, maybe. So this is like the fifth, sixth year. It's year eight. Year eight.
0: Yeah. So my first my first year in the NBA was two thousand six, and I did some games with Bill. And I remember one one we were doing a game in Chicago it was Cleveland Chicago and LeBron James, I think it was LeBron, it may have been Ben Wallace took his headband off and threw it towards uh, the scores table and sure. Bill starts yelling, that's a technical foul, it's a technical, and he's going off about the officials and I just kind of let him go. And I remember having a conversation with Mike Tirico shortly thereafter, and he said, Hey, let me give you some advice on Bill, you got to stop him. You can't just oh. let him go. And it was great advice. So when five years later or six years later, whatever it was, Bill was coming back to ESPN and they got the Pac-12 contract and they told us, hey, we're going to have you guys work together. I remembered that. I sure. remember Mike's advice of, hey, stop him. And because, you know, I was just happy to be on the NBA. So I was like I'm sitting next to Bill Walton, the Hall of Famer, a guy that's obviously one of the greatest players of all time and had done so many NBA finals. I'm just happy to be there. I just kind of let him do whatever he wanted. Didn't realize that you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that that helped me, I think, jump into this in 2012, 13, or whatever it was. Sure. Yeah.
1: It w- was he in that first season, year one, like wacky Bill Walton, or uh, like when did this become like Bill Walton's going to wear tie dye and yeah. uh, you know eat peanut butter while you while you're calling a game?
0: The first year on this the, on the college basketball pack 12 I'm trying to remember. I think he did wear a sport coat at times. Okay, okay. He never wore a tie because his hands don't work. He can't tie his tie. So uh, he, I was just, we, we were at the Maui Invitational this year. It's the first time I've ever done it. It worked out with Cardinal schedule in college football. And I was coming from Baton Rouge. We had a Saturday night game at LSU. So I was like on fumes. And I hadn't seen Bill since March or a producer, Tim Sullivan. And we're getting ready to do this shoot with a green screen. And Tim Sullivan is buttoning Bill's shirt. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's right. That's right. This, yeah. you know, because he, he can't do it. He can't do it with his hands. So anyway, uh, I think that's part of why he started going down the road. I honestly think if the first year Bill was probably trying to get fired, or maybe, <laughs> or just see if if what he could get away with. Sure. Uh, because you know Bill has said many times things didn't end well the first time uh, at ESPN uh, when he was doing the NBA, and you know he he was glad that they brought him back, and I think he was like you know I'm gonna. I'm going to be me. Sure. And I think ESPN has been fair with us and embracing Bill. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, they want us to make sure we're not doing a disservice to the fan. I think if it was just a free-for-all all the time, yep. we'd probably be in trouble. But I think the fact that our, still our number one goal is to document the game and talk about the players. And I think Bill does that. I mean, people don't realize how hard Bill works. He's He goes to every shoot around. We've had Arizona probably nine times. UCLA, we'll have had about 12 And he still goes to every shoot-around. He talks to the SID for 90 minutes. He talks to the coach. He talks to the players. His homework may be a little different than, you know, Jimmy Dykes calling a game or Fran Fraschilla calling a game where their focus is on X's and O's. Bill's not really doing that. He's doing more personal stories. Not that Fran and Jimmy aren't, but that's more of Bill's focus. I mean, Bill has sheets of paper with all this information on there. 95% of it doesn't get in, but he's working. It's just a different it's just a different process, but yeah. he's still working
1: hard. Well, there was one, uh, there's been a couple times this year, but there was one, I think it was the Arizona Oregon game, which you guys just did last Saturday as we record, uh, where it was something like, you know, well, this guy's number two all time in NCAA history. Who's number one? and and you're like i'll buy dinner for a year or whatever and he's like oh it was uh dave pash loyola marymount 1968 and and it, it was a classic moment because you looked into the camera you had a little camera presence too now don't let bill take all the credit here you had some camera presence you looked right and you were like i cannot believe this old man well uh
0: okay so to be completely honest. That that was staged.
1: Oh come on! Uh, that, that i cut staged. that out. I can't. T- I can't. No,
0: that's okay. Because actually, if you go back and watch it, and the reason I'm I'm telling you this is because they rolled back. Bill had a card.
1: Oh. Bill had a card
0: with it on there. So when I say it was staged, he he sure. knew the answer. Oh. Yes.
1: Well, it's good. They activity. sold them out.
0: They sold them out. But uh, yeah, we. It, it that that's that's rare though. That's rare.
1: Is there – last thing on him, because I want to talk about you, your career, and everything. Is there anything he's done – I mean, I'm sure probably at least once a game he does something where you're like, oh, I can't believe it. Has there ever been – yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, has there ever been anything that – like, maybe it's 50 things, but that, that made you pause in your tracks, or what's the craziest thing he's done, the thing you've least been prepared for? Or what? Well,
0: the, the eating the, the lit cupcake. Okay, yeah, When he yeah. ate the cupcake with the candle lit, that I had no – I mean, I just said I dare you to take a bite out of it. I meant the cupcake, not the <laughs> candle. So when he did that, yeah. You know, it's funny, and I, I think I've said this before. I don't know people that are listening would remember. But, you know, we – none of it is rehearsed. Like, we don't rehearse anything. We don't even talk. He doesn't want to talk to me at all before it's, the game. He, he'll, okay. he will avoid me. Okay. He doesn't want any contact whatsoever. It uh, So I have no idea what's coming. Sure. Sometimes, most of the time, our producer will hide things from me or hide things from Bill. We'll come back from break. He'll say, okay, we're coming back with a highlight package of Nico Mannion, and then Bill's got a gift for you, or Bill's got something for you, okay. or I got something special coming. So other than what I told you about the the card where he knew who the guy was that had the record that we were discussing – 99.9% of the time, I have no idea what he's going to say or what he's going to do. So uh, I didn't even know the cupcakes were coming that night. It was Arizona State-Washington. It was our producer's birthday, and I think he sung happy birthday to, to Dr. No. He calls him Dr. No because <laughs> he always says no. He always says yes, which I don't know why Bill calls him Dr. No. But uh, And that's when the cupcake thing happened. And, again, I had no idea what was coming. I didn't know he was going to do it. Um, he did it again. We had Bobby Hurley on postgame. It actually didn't air live. I think it may have aired um, – the app or something, but he actually did it again because Bobby Hurley wanted to see him do it. Really? So he did okay. it again for, for Bobby, yeah. All
1: right, well, listen, um, be disingenuous. I, I want to talk about your career. So first of all, I don't—I didn't even tell you this on the way in. So I'm a UConn guy. Okay. And you're a Q's guy. Yeah. So, so first of all, I, I don't know how this is going to work for the rest of the interview, <laughs> but, but I've always been fascinated. So, I mean, I always like talking to people in our business, how do you get involved, what do you do? But, I mean, I feel like when you go to Syracuse – You have a pretty good understanding, at least in our field. For people who don't know, Syracuse Broadcast is the premier broadcast school, I think, in America. University of Missouri is pretty good, too. But, so was sports always your thing? Was, like, did you know you wanted to be in this field? Because I assume if you go to Syracuse, that's the plan.
0: Yes. So I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. And, uh was a decent athlete, but not great. Sure. And Weren't so, we all, yeah. Uh, right. Probably and, we're uh, all a
1: little bit better than, we're not quite as good as we remember. And, yeah. and
0: looking at me, I'm sure you're not shocked to think 25 years ago that I was decent, but not great. Uh, and <laughs> like I uh, I wanted to stay involved in sports, and I actually originally wanted, I tried stand-up comedy, tried to be an actor, I wasn't, wasn't very I, good. So, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa. I, I heard you say this in an interview, that you tried stand-up yeah. comedy. So. Explain. So I had a
0: friend who was actually working as a stand-up comic, and he was my age at the time. We were 16 years old. Oh, okay. okay. And he was working at a legit like comedy club in Madison, Wisconsin. He was getting paid, and they would also have open mic nights. So I would come down for the open mic night, and and do a routine. And like I said, it wasn't very good. Or I did like the talent shows at middle school or high school. I you know did got on stage and did it, and I, I just I wasn't very good. Or uh, but I, but. I was such a sports fan. I wanted to stay involved in sports, and I remember watching college basketball uh, growing up in Madison. You know, I I was a I was a pro sports fan, but more college because you're in Madison, and college basketball in particular. And I fell in love with Syracuse basketball watching because they were on all the time. It was. in high school, in, uh, graduated in 1990, so I'm giving you my age, but high school graduated 1990, so in the late 80s, Syracuse had just gone to the championship game, and that's when I think I became a huge fan, and they were on all the time, and Dick Vitale was always talking about all the broadcasters who wow. came, went to Syracuse, and I'm thinking, oh, these are guys I watch all the time, Bob Costas, Marv Albert, Dick Stockton, these were household names, so... When Dick was talking about this, it piqued my interest. Like, wow, I love Syracuse basketball, and they have a great broadcast school. So I looked. I looked. That was the school I wanted to go to and did it. And they have a great broadcast school. The radio station there is uh, legendary with all the people that have come through there, starting with Marty Glickman. And so that's kind of how it happened. But if not for Dick Vital, I may never have known, because it's not like we had the Internet or cell phones. I probably would have had no idea – Uh, Growing up in Wisconsin, that Syracuse even had a broadcast school. If it wasn't for Dickie V,
1: that's so incredible. And it it is funny because as I go through my life, so I I went to UConn, but I grew up in Connecticut. The number of people who, as sports fans or like college basketball because of the old Big East, is staggering. Like you meet people, like like I have a buddy who hosts radio in Arkansas, diehard Razorbacks, whatever. But like he still will be like. Remember in 04 Ben Gordon? I'll be oh, like, yeah. yeah, like I Absolutely. do. That was my childhood. Of course I remember. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: So. Yeah, I was talking with Jason Hart, uh, yep. th- the USC assistant coach, just about the old Big East yep. and how great it was. And, you know, it's still, it's still to me, sad that to Syracuse isn't in the Big East sure. and, and that the Georgetown and Syracuse aren't in the same conference because that's what I grew up on. Yep. And then going to Syracuse and being able to go to the games as a student, do the games for the student radio station, and then I went back to be their announcer for three years. Okay. So I got to do games, and Jason actually was playing uh, there. So uh, it, it's it, – it, to me, it just it, – it's what sports was about growing up was Big East basketball, even though I was living in Wisconsin.
1: Well, and it's crazy because even as a UConn fan, I'm excited they're going back to the Big East, yeah. you know. But it's – there isn't Syracuse, there isn't Louisville, which obviously was a later – you know, it's right. it's still, you know, you got – Providence and and Villanova, but when I was there, it was Syracuse and it was Georgetown was actually good again because JT three at that point had come yeah and so the so but the teams you know Syracuse and Louisville were the ones that were the, that were really good when I was there and so there's an excitement within the fan base. I live here in California now, so it's not as big of a deal, but you know you. It's not like I'm excited, but it's not, it's still not the same. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. No,
0: it, it's great that they're going back, but you're right. I, it's, it's hard to duplicate mm-hmm. what when Connecticut going back to uh, the late 80s and the early 90s, you know, Rip Hamilton uh, all the way through Kemble Walker. I mean, I remember doing for ESPN the day games the year that Kemba went off at the Big East tournament. And just, first of all, the Big East tournament, the early games. On a on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and the place is mm-hmm. packed because yep. Connecticut's playing or Syracuse is playing, and that was incredible to be at the Garden when Kemba went off the, the step back against Pitt. That's right. uh, I mean that that was uh, so much fun. So I'm glad they're going
1: back to the Big East. Yeah, I forgot you were on that call. You were on the the Gary yeah. call, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. We wow. broke the guy's ankles. Ankles. yeah. yeah. The step back Oof. that started the uh, you know Sean McDonough and. Uh, Raft and Billis were doing the championship game, so that start. But that was the the day games. I mm-hmm. think that got Kemba going, and then they had already played off.
1: two games before that game, which is insane. Yes, yes. Pitt was, I think, the number one seed. UConn was eight or nine. Right. I think they won, they won five in a row. Five in yeah. five yeah, days. that's right. Eleven yeah. straight neutral court games. That's I, right. I never Unreal. Forget. Unreal. What a run. So, what else besides? So, you went to Syracuse, and, and I, I've seen you've been at ESPN for about 15, 18 – I think two thousand two. So, I guess that's eighteen years now. Uh, steps along the way or moments at ESPN that kind of stand out because we got a limited amount of time here. You got a oh, game yeah. to call here in a minute, so yeah. I mean, I'll
0: briefly. You know, after after Syracuse, I went uh, took the first only job I could get. First job I could get, which is Morgantown, West Virginia. I covered everything from high school football to city council meetings. Oh, so I was there for about ten months. Worked in Detroit for two years, Chicago for two. Went back to Syracuse to be their announcer for three. Got the Cardinals job, moved to Phoenix, and then about a year after that, started work for ESPN. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the career path.
1: Any advice, uh, kids? I'm sure ask you all the time. They ask me all the time. Any advice for somebody that any walk of sports or your feel? Are you you know you doing play by play specifically? Anything yeah. specific?
0: You know the, uh, the the advice I give people that especially want to do play by play is to get reps. Sure. The more you 100%. do, uh, the the better you get because mm-hmm. you just get comfortable. You get comfortable with your own voice. You know one thing. At Syracuse, you know, we were you were so focused on calling the game that you didn't really learn how to work with an analyst because at Syracuse, your analysts were the other play-by-play guys. Like, if we did a college football game, you would split with the other play-by-play guys. So you would do like first, and you flip a coin. Whoever won usually did first and fourth quarters, and the other guy did color. And then you flipped for second and third. So. You weren't working with, like, a real analyst, so you didn't get that kind of training. And when I got to ESPN, like, I had to kind of learn how to really work with an analyst mm-hmm. and worked with, obviously, a lot of different analysts down through the years and, and a variety of styles, including, obviously, Bill. Uh, so, like, this weird, we I got Chauncey, Doris, Bill, Bill and Richard Jefferson over a five-day <laughs> span. I mean, you talk about, yes. like, how unique yeah. all those people are and talented. So that that's the advice I would give people is get reps and learn how to work with you. You know, your job is to make it easy for your analyst because the analyst is the expert. That's who people want to hear. They don't want to hear me. They want to hear the analyst.
1: How long did it take you for you to feel like I'm pretty good at this? Because listen, you you work some of the premier spots for ESPN. It's obviously a, a great uh, shift, and clearly your bosses think very highly of you. But how long did it take you in your career to get to where you're like? I'm actually pretty good at this or I don't know if don't you know. ever feel like that
0: No I think you always feel that you know I, I when a game's over, if I'm happy with it or unhappy with it, it's always like you got to prove yourself the next game it sounded you know it sounds kind of cliche I guess and what maybe an athlete would say but it's true <laughs> I mean you
1: yeah.
0: you you have to prove yourself every game because you're only as good as your last broadcast you you never know who's watching or listening. Uh, and you could have your best moment, and the people that are watching it are people that um, you know, are decision makers. or you could have your worst game right at the worst moment where somebody that's a big decision maker happens to see that. And that's what they remember. So it, it's, you, know, you just you've got to be great every game because you never know who's listening or watching or how you're being judged or evaluated. And obviously, it's a, it's a really competitive field, not just ESPN, but you know, the entire business. So I, I, I've always felt that you've never arrived. You've never gotten to the point where, hey, I can I can settle in or I can take it easy. I try to – every single game, the way I prepare for it's the same, whether it's uh, – we did Michigan-Alabama in the, in the Citrus Bowl. Yeah. You know, so – and then I'm trying to think, Earlier in the year, it was a week where there weren't a lot of great games. Uh, so I can't remember. I think we did a game at Wake Forest. Uh, but I prepared the same way for that as I did for Michigan-Alabama on New Year's Day just because that's how I am because I got to – my job is to serve the fan and – if i'm not at my best or i'm thinking hey this isn't as big of a game as that game down the road then you know i think the mark of a great broadcaster is the one that prepares the same way and is the same way on the air each game
1: is it hard to go cuz you you just said a minute ago you as we record here on a thursday you did a wednesday night nba game there are times of the year where you're going from college football to the nba or college football to college basketball is it hard to adjust from one to the other or is it just is it so second nature at this i point think i've <laughs>
0: Aaron, I think I've just gotten used to it. Yeah. You know, it's been 16 years doing the Cardinals in college football, so uh, right. you know the Saturday Sunday deal, the, the basketball. I'm so used to it now, you just you just kind of adjust. And a lot of it depends again on who your analyst is, because your job is to set up your analyst, make your analyst shine. And working a game with Bill, it's different, right? You're you're not going to talk as much X and O as yeah, to somebody else. So, yeah. so, you know. Um, it's, you just kind of adjust like doing a TV game on a Saturday for college football, doing a radio game on a Sunday. It's just, I don't know. You just, I'm just so used to it. I'm so conditioned to, okay. TV, don't talk as much radio talk mm-hmm, all the time. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. So yeah, I would say it's, I don't know if it's become second nature. Cause again, I'm always like, Hey, I haven't arrived. You know, you're, you're only as good as your last game, but, um, it's just muscle memory.
1: I yeah. guess. do you have a favorite you know in terms of college basketball do you have a favorite arena or favorite venue or a favorite place to go
0: the carrier dome still yeah! is number one man i can't you, I, it's a great place I, to watch it a game, is especially I, big it's game. so unique it I is just doing you know doing the games there where there's 30,000 plus it's just uh i mean fog allen's great cameron's great uh there are places in the pac-12 that i love going to oregon uh, Tucson's great. I've done games at ASU where it's rocking. remember the UCLA game when Lonzo Ball played here at USC. That was rocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poly can get, I mean, every college basketball arena can be good. It just depends on the environment that given night. But for me, it's always going to be the dome because that's part of sure. what attracted me to get into broadcasting in the first place.
1: So I heard an interview, did, Is you had to to do your demos and for people who know you can probably figure it out but demo is you know your practice tape to yeah. show to whatever you had to do it from the stands in the carrier dome
0: so right when you when you go to Syracuse to get cleared meaning okay. to get on air at this the is, student as radio student, station okay, yeah. you start with just doing normal sports casts and then the sports director who happens to be a student who's a senior clears you or doesn't clear you to get on air the next step once you start doing sport sports casts usually after a year or two is then you start to audition to do the games, and yes, basically part of the training is you got to call the game. Well, how do you call a game? You call it at the arena. Well, it's not like you get a press pass and you yeah. can't do it sitting courtside. So you're in the stands. Wow. So I'm sitting there with, you know, my buddies hanging around me. while I'm sit- <laughs> talking to a tape recorder. It's not like it, the carry on for a basketball game. You can find a nice little corner where there isn't yeah. anybody, yeah. you know, watching the game. There's thirty thousand people there.
1: And for people who've never been there. You know, you can find quiet spaces, but you're so far from the court, you probably can't can't figure out who the heck is doing what. Right.
0: You can try to go behind the curtain, you know, way up high and see if you can see it. So, Uh, But, yeah, that was part of how we got on the air. I mean, and it's funny to think about all the people, you know, Mike Tarico, Sean McDonough, Ian Eagle. I don't know if even, like, when Marv Albert was there that they had to do that, but all of us had to go through that to get on the air.
1: It's basically like a frat.
0: It is wild to think of the people. I mean, there are so many talented people that have come out of there behind the scenes, on air. But they don't make it easy for you. Sure. I mean, you gotta, you gotta earn it with. You know. I mean, what what is more embarrassing than sitting there faking broadcasting? Yeah. You're not. I mean, you're doing a game into <laughs> so a you're microphone, just talking
1: into like a microphone, into like, like a tape recorder. Oh my Into goodness. a tape
0: recorder, and then you take the tape and you give it to the sports director, and he or she either says, "Okay, that's good enough," or "Nope." You gotta. I mean, there are people who. It took years to get on the air, so you Ooh. gotta do it ten, fifteen, twenty times.
1: Was there I'm sure people say this about you, but were there there must have been guys or girls that you went to school with that people would know, right? Because like yeah. I'll just give you an example. I'm thinking of this, is my buddy is an executive over at FS one, good friend of mine, we were having beers the other night, and he's like, Oh yeah, you know, I was talking to Ariel the other night and I was like, Oh, Ariel, like, I don't know who that is, but whatever. He's like, Oh yeah, Ariel Hawani, that was oh, my yeah. that was my that was my roommate for two years in college. And I was like Oh, uh, oh okay. So but they were both Syracuse yeah. guys, so I feel like you probably have the same or somebody is saying that about you.
0: And I worked with Ariel for the first time about a month ago and didn't know that he went to really? surgery, so okay, so yeah, we started yeah. talking about <laughs> it. Yeah, so people that you would know, Andrew Siciliano, Scott Hansen, yeah. are two guys, Scott and Andrew, both work for NFL Network and then do, I think, separate uh, Red Zone channel uh, stuff. Those are two guys that were there when when I was there, my freshman year. Tariko was working in local television. Um, I think Ian was you know already doing NBA games when when wow. I was to Syracuse. But uh, you know when I went back to be their play by play announcer in 1999, so I was 26, and I had replaced a guy who had been there for 20 years. Ooh. So they were concerned here. Yeah, they wanted to hire somebody that went to Syracuse. But they were concerned about, hey, he's replacing a legend, so let's have him do games with other former Syracuse broadcasters. Okay. So I got to do a game with Marv. Wow. Dick Stockton, uh, Hank Greenwald. I don't know if that name's familiar to you. did I've the heard Yankees, of it, did yeah, the A's. But- Andy Musser, who did, did the Phillies. I was supposed to do a game with Marty Glickman, who he actually got sick and ended up passing away. Costas, Tarico, McDonough, Ian Eagle, uh, Len Berman. Um, I mean, guys that were so great, uh, already fantastic, well-established announcers. And that really helped me. It was a confidence builder to be able to sit there with these guys. And most of them, uh, if not all of them, were just phenomenal in terms of helping me. But it was really cool for a guy with his first real play-by-play job to be sitting next to so these
1: they would, guys. So they were just flying from Mar- – Marv Albert fly in for a big Monday game against Georgetown or whatever?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember what Marv was doing at yeah, that at yeah, that yeah. point. But, uh, yeah, he um, – you know, the university would set it up, and they would they would uh, fly them in, and you would do – I would have my normal analyst, and then there would be a third person in the booth, depending on the game. But – and I would ask them, hey, you know, you want to do play-by-play for a while? And some would say yes, some would say no, and uh, just have a blast. I mean, probably the most fun – I mean, look, I, I, I have a great relationship with Tarico and, and Sean and, and Ian for a long time the guy that I didn't really know that I looked up to because he had been around and done the NBA finals in the eighties was Dick Stockton. Sure. And he was like, so cool uh, to work with. And I've actually, uh, you know, still friends with Dick, uh, even though that was, you know, 20 years ago. So that was a great experience. Got to know guys like Dick and, and Mike and Sean and, and I, and through that, that i
1: you know stayed in contact with. So, all right, you got to run in a couple minutes. So a couple quick questions. One, it seems like you've broadcast just about everything. Um, I saw on Wikipedia, I don't know if this is true, the Great Outdoor Games. Did you do the Great Outdoor Games? I did. That was
0: my first, uh, that that along with uh, women's college basketball, the first stuff I did for ESPN.
1: How do you prepare for the Great Outdoor Games?
0: Uh, you don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. It was me and Jimmy Dykes doing really? big air dog jumping with Stacy Dales as our sideline reporter.
1: So Jimmy Dykes, we're recording on Thursday. Jimmy Dykes was on today's show. And he, he's – you guys are all busy, but, but you know, I didn't want to bug him with anything other than the pertinent things. But now I can ask him about dog jumping, so this yeah. is great.
0: Yeah, Big Air. That's what it was called, Big Air. Yeah. He um, – that's – so that was in uh, – I think it was in Madison and then Orlando, but that's, that's yeah, how I got started at ESPN.
1: But you can't you can't prepare for it is basically what you're saying.
0: No, I don't remember what I did to prepare for it. I I, I think when you got there, like, you just – Did you did just, give you a pamphlet? They, yeah. yeah, here are the contestants, and here are their trainers. I did archery. Okay. For Great Outdoor, I did one sausage. I think Jimmy and I did the uh, uh, sausage eating contest. Okay. And I remember going into uh, the restroom, and I, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Eater X, although I think he, <laughs> I said this on the air one time, and Eater X actually tweeted at me that that was not true. Okay, okay, okay. But Eater X, there was a guy that had a mask. He was in there making oh himself my. puke after the after the contest because, you know, you wow. eat like 100 sausages. Uh, so anyway,
1: this is a, I'll just say this and I, I need to let you go, but this is an important life lesson for young people listening because we see you Pac-12 Thursday night, NBA Wednesday night. We see Jimmy Dykes, the voice of SEC basketball, and everybody's got to start somewhere. Absolutely. And, I, and I think like because I'm at a fortunate point, I, I you know, I, I host a national radio show and I, I get to do a lot of cool things. I'm always like everybody else looking for that next step, but I even have people, you know, how did you get to where you are now? And I feel like I haven't gotten anywhere, but the point being is that, you know, I think people see you or see Mike Breen or whomever, and they think like, oh, that guy's got a job at ESPN, he gets to go to games, it's great. And not to say that great outdoor games aren't great. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying it is, I think for young people listening, it's important to know, and I think it goes back to what you said a minute ago about take every responsibility as if it's the biggest thing that you've ever done.
0: Yeah. Breen is phenomenal. He's I, got he, – he, Is it, he
1: – I think I just saw him at lunch. I think he's in L.A. Yeah, right they've
0: Yeah, got, they've got uh, the Friday-Sunday uh, deal. I saw him at lunch yeah. today, yeah. Uh, man, Mike is so good um, and very well-deserved honor for him getting to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I think you just – you've got to take – you know, you got to pay your dues. Every, yeah. We've all had to do it. It's rare. I mean, I think there are some that have elevated quickly right out of college to – you know, getting a play. I mean, Greg Papa. I remember uh, Greg Papa was there was a an article, a Sports Illustrated article, up at the student radio station at Syracuse when I got there, and it said the next Marv Albert, and it was oh. Greg Papa. And Greg Papa got an NBA job right out of college in 1984. Whenever Greg graduated, he, he does uh, he does the 49ers now, and he did the Warriors forever. Uh, been in the Bay Area forever, um, but he he was like he got. He was the guy everybody wanted to be because he got an NBA job right out of college, play-by-play. Play. That's rare. Most yeah. of us have had to do the other stuff. Sure. And so, yeah, I would just say work hard, take opportunities to get better, to get comfortable with your voice, learning how to work with an analyst, and just do as many games as you can.
1: Mm-hmm. Anything else? you got it. You got to run. Anything else that your life – uh, what do you want to talk about? I got, I got. You got I time? Got, I got
0: five minutes. What time is it? Fi- we got five minutes. Okay, we're good. We got so. Five
1: besides Bill Walton, who who have you enjoyed working with? And I'll tell you this really quick. I he wouldn't remember this, but I was in a talent meeting with Greg McElroy, and I thought he was trying out. This was probably six, seven years ago for FS1, and he's obviously very successful at ESPN that dude was maybe the brightest person like every question because you know how it is with the with with people that come in they've never done you know some of them are good some of them aren't like everything that my then boss has asked him he's like well you know and he would just go for four minutes and it would be the most interesting stuff ever and so I've always respected him for it um I know you do a lot of college football with him you do stuff with Doris all that kind of stuff
0: I think the cool thing is you know most of the people that i've worked with over the years you get to become great friends with you you know you develop great friendships with with all of them so i mean i've i've loved everybody that i've had the opportunity to work with and you know greg include i mean greg and i become great friends and i think he's an absolute star and we'll probably be working with uh, people much higher on the food chain than me in the near future i think i think greg is excellent and yeah, I'm just trying to think of all the – I mean, in, 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 the, the, on the college football side, of, you know, work with Brian Greasy, Chris Spielman, Urban Meyer the year that Urban was out and have great well, friendships with, with all of them. Real quick, and people – Doris, you know, I love Doris and Jeff and Mark and Hubie, all the people I've gotten to work with on the NBA side.
1: People would wonder, Urban Meyer, I mean, he's such a – he's one, he's a larger-than-life figure, but, um, you know, the stuff that you hear from people who have worked for him, this is on the football side, is – so intense. i would imagine that he comes in he's probably got to be about the most prepared guy on the planet
0: that was uh, that year was uh, as much fun as i've had he really? working with we we had a blast uh we had an absolute blast i think for him it was you know he he had been coaching forever yep. it was the first time he had not coached yes, yes, so yes. but oh yeah he was prepared and i learned a ton because he would come in with um, I mean, it blew my mind how much I thought I might have known about football, and then being around really? him, and he was happy to teach you it too. It was oh, great.
1: Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I just know somebody that worked with him, and they said when he was in football mode, this was different. He worked from at Ohio State, but he said every day was fourth and one on the goal oh, line, yeah. got to get it done, no excuses, play like a champ. and it was just, it was just so. So I can imagine that, especially like you said, first time ever not being in a locker room, around a team, you know, he had to channel that, you know, competitiveness, I guess for lack of a better term or whatever you want to use, fire in your stomach, whatever, into something, and I assume it would have made for something.
0: There's baseball. a fun side to Urban that, I, 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 that I, I think when you're in coach mode, it's sure, hard to, yeah. to let that show. But, you know, there are people that say that Bill Belichick has a great sense of humor and he's comfortable around certain people with that sense of humor. I think Urban's that way with certain people, and I, I've been fortunate enough to see that side of him.
1: Yeah. Alright, you gotta run last now, now that I, I've kind of forgot to ask you this last question. A lot of people who follow college basketball, they just don't get to watch the Pac twelve very much. And I, I think I was supposed to ask you this like ten minutes ago, but we never got to it. But we're going into the weekend, so a lot can change. But one thing you and I were talking about before we got started is I think Pac twelve basketball is pretty good this year. For people that can't stay up until eleven o'clock or twelve o'clock on these Thursdays, just give us a quick rundown. Who do you need to know? What teams do you like? What are kind of the, you know, the the psyche of the a couple of these teams going into March.
0: Yeah, I, I think the Pac-12 this year, I think there are several teams that can go deep, and I think for the Pac-12 to get the respect that um, it wants, it, it, it has to have that happen this year. They had Oregon in the Final Four a couple of years ago, but it's like everybody forgot about that because of, you know, the the teams have not gone deep. And with UCLA, you know, being down the last mm-hmm. couple of years, uh, I think Mick Cronin's going to get that thing going there. So, so and, and that's... Yeah. That's going to be fun to watch because that will help the entire league. But watching Oregon, Dane Altman's a great coach. Peyton Pritchard is the is the best point guard I've seen this year in the entire country and one of the top five players I've seen in, in college basketball. So it'll be fun to watch him in the tournament because he, he can carry you. I mean, I saw it. I've seen it twice now, him do it uh, in overtime against Arizona. Um, the, the most talented NBA player in the Pac-12 is Kongwu from USC. Sure who I'm going to get to see tonight. Um, I think Arizona is capable. They certainly have talent. Uh, if their offense, if they're on and they're shooting well, they could go deep in the tournament. What Bobby Hurley's done with Arizona State, uh, Remy Martin is a great player. They have uh, this kid Verge off the bench yeah. who's who's really talented. And, again, just UCLA. I'm curious if UCLA can keep this going and win the Pac-12. I wouldn't be shocked with the way that mick got him playing right now.
1: It's incredible. When I talked to him before the season, I spent some time around him, and I give him so much credit because, first of all, I thought it was a good sign in this kind of transfer portal era. All those guys stayed. They wanted to be coached. They wanted to learn. But everybody says that in August, September, October – and then you get to December and you're losing games. And, you know, he was very bluntly honest yeah. in the media. But those guys bought in, man. And we're, we're recording here right before this ASU game. Anything could happen. They could go into two this weekend. But I've been so impressed. I, I don't think, and, and you would know this being around this, I don't think people realize how hard it is in your first season, I say partly that as a UConn fan, who things went south under Kevin Ollie, Dan Hurley gets there. It takes time, and I'm just so impressed by what he's done this year at UCLA.
0: We had him in Maui, and you know they were not good mm-hmm. at all. It yep. was it was ugly. And watching them now, it's 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 night and day. Players that I think last year you could question their mental and physical toughness. You're not questioning mm-hmm. them now. I mean, they're playing winning basketball, which. Has something that's been absent with them, so uh, that's why I say I'm curious. If if they make the tournament, which I still think they could do, even if they don't win the Pac-12 the way they're playing right now, I wouldn't want to play them.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm so fascinated to see if they can actually get in that large. Dave Pash, ESPN. I had a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Eric. We'll do it again soon when you get back to LA. But thank you. Uh, enjoy the game tonight. Appreciate it. All right, so a big thank you to Dave Pash. Uh, that was awesome. And, and more than anything, I just want to thank Dave for giving me the time. Uh, I wish I could do all of these interviews in person. It makes for such a good conversation, such a good interaction. But Dave was awesome, man. And, and what it really comes down to is he is a very busy guy, a very prominent voice for ESPN. And it was so gracious of him to take time out of his busy schedule to talk to me. And I think he had fun, because if you heard, there were two or three times where he said stuff like, nah, I got 10 more minutes, ask away, anything you want. So thank you to Dave Pasch. Uh, I will try to get him on again in the future, um, because I really enjoyed it, because I really, really did enjoy it. All right, before I get out of here, very special quick shout out of the day to a former guest of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, how about some guy named Jim Calhoun? So if you remember, Jim Calhoun For the people who have listened to this show since day one, Jim Calhoun was actually a guest on like episode, I don't know, like 10, episode 20. It was like the summer of 2018, and Jim Calhoun was a guest. And at the time, the reason I had him on was because he's freaking Jim Calhoun. He's a Hall of Famer. But he was also starting a coaching job at a D3 school in Connecticut named St. Joseph's University. And what made St. Joseph's University very unique was that not only did they not have a basketball program when he took the job? They didn't have male students. It's it was an all girls school. It's literally about a ten minute drive from where I grew up. I could walk there. Uh, my grandma, uh, my, she passed away recently, but um, you know her house was five minutes from this college. It was an all girls school, super religious school. And they, they started admitting men in 2018. So think about that. They didn't even have men on campus four years ago. They did not have a basketball team three years ago. And fast forward to 2020. In his second year as the head coach of this team, Jim Calhoun had them at 26-2 and overall on a 25-game win streak in uh, on the season. They go 11-0 in conference, And on Sunday afternoon, they clinched a spot in the D3 championship. And I'll just tell you this, I know a lot of you, most of you are not UConn fans, okay? I get that. I get that Jim Calhoun was a thorn in a lot of people's sides. But you cannot tell me that he is not one of the great coaches in the history of college basketball. What he did at UConn is incredible. I don't think people realize when he got to UConn, it was far and away the worst job in in the best conference in college basketball. It was the worst job in a conference that had Jim Beheim at Syracuse, John Thompson at Georgetown, um, you know, whoever. uh, Rolly Massimino at Villanova, Luke Karnaseka at St. John's. It was the worst job in the best conference in college basketball. And by the end of it, he had UConn as a three-time national champion. So think about it like this. What's the worst job in the ACC right now? Probably like Boston College or Clemson. Imagine a dude taking the Boston College job this year and in three years he has him as a number one seed and by the time that guy leaves 25 years later he's won three national championships at Boston College or three national championships at Clemson in basketball or three national championships at Washington State in basketball it was an incredible feat then it remains an incredible feat and he remains at 77 years old one of the greatest coaches in the sport of basketball even today To take a program that did not exist three years ago, 26-2 in year two, 11-0 in conference and in the D3 tournament, I'll tell you this, when Dan Hurley took the UConn job, there was very much talk that if he didn't take that job, there was a big faction of the UConn fan base that wanted to bring back Jim Calhoun. I don't know how far it got, but the point is that guy had a lot left in the tank, credit to him. Incredible day for him. Incredible day for the St. Joseph's program. I know they're throwing a party in the streets near my grandma's house, but a school that did not have men on campus four years ago is going to the D3 tournament, thanks to Jim Calhoun. All right, I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It has been a long one. For those of you who made it all the way to the end, I truly appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Please, if you're not already subscribed, make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast iTunes. Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, this is the one you want to subscribe to for the next month in March, April, NCAA tournament. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Make sure you're following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram, And, of course, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. And finally, of course, if you do uh, are interested at least in talking about um, a potential advertising opportunity with the website or with the show, you can always hit me up, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. All right, I think that's it for today's show. It was a good one. It was a long one. I appreciate your guys' time. That is it. I will be back later this week. Shout-out to my boy Torrent Craig, the Australian legend shout out to Rachel who hates my voice I will be back on Thursday have a great day guys.